You're listening to the Thank God for Nostra podcast. Hello and welcome to the Thank God for Nostra podcast. My name is Jordan Bush. I am the head of content and education for TGFB Media. And I'm Hadlebot. I am the developer of the Coracle.social Nostra client. And today we are going to be revisiting uh, the Nostra Book Club. We are going to be reading through a book called The Shallows. John, why don't you introduce us uh, to, to the book? Yeah, the subtitle is What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It's, uh, it's a fairly old book. Um, it was written in 2009. Um, yep. So you would think that it would be a little out of date with, uh, with regard to the, the landscape of the digital world, but um, it is not. Uh, he, he has a, an afterword to the second edition at the end of it, and um, he kind of explains like, yeah, uh, it turns out that smartphones aren't really inherently different from the way that computer use was was uh, going uh, previously. Uh, AI was kind of a project in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, we're just kind of actually finally realizing uh, the full extent of um, of what has happened to our brains as a result of digital technology. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It was a <clears throat> it was a good book. Um, I think I've heard a lot of this stuff before. It I, it seems to have kind of leaked into the popular. Uh, consciousness as far as our understanding of technology goes, but um, always good to go back to the found. What what did you think of it, Jordan? Yeah, no, I thought it was really good. Um, It wasn't necessarily that there was all kinds of new, new thoughts, uh, just kind of re rehashing things that we've talked about before or kind of, I I thought through at different points. Uh, But I really, again, I thought it was presented in a really good way. And, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of good things that we're gonna we're gonna chew on over the course of this episode. Um, so l- let me just ask you: How did you hear about this book? Was there somebody who mentioned this to you? Yeah, so Pablo uh, mentioned it on uh, on Nostra. That's right. And uh, given that it was Pablo, I just went ahead and bought the book without even looking at it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, um, and yeah, as I was reading it, there were definitely a lot of parallels with the uh, Human Forever book that we read uh, a few weeks ago. Yep. Um, you know, Pulos is uh, a little bit more eloquent and kind of more politically oriented and philosophically oriented. It was nice yep. having read Pulos's book um, to be able to import that kind of context into this kind of more popular and, uh, you know, just sort of mechanical level uh, of of book. Um, you know, particularly Pulos's definition of politeia came up a couple of times. The idea that we shape our tools and our tools shape our shape our, uh, our lives and our homes. Um, you can say basically that, uh, according to, uh, Carr, the author of the shallows that, um, we shape our tools and then our tools shape our brains as a result. Um, which is an interesting, yeah. different kind of angle to, uh, to take on it. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's actually something that a guy who we will talk more about at some point in the future, uh, Doug Wilson talks about, he mentions the same principle that, you know, we shape our we shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. Um, you know, this is something G.K. Beale has talked about. Uh, you know, you are what you worship. Like we, we, this is this is what we do. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah. But I, again, I don't think it's an idea that has reached a lot of popular level discussion uh, or appreciation. And and so, yeah. Why don't we just jump right in? What was the what were some of the things that just stuck out to you right off the bat? Well, yeah, he uh, he focuses a lot on like brain chemistry. He kind of goes through the actual mechanism of uh, how like short term memories uh, turn into long term memories via the hippocampus. 
So he talked about that um, uh, there was a surgery that happened to, to a guy early in the 1900s where they removed his hippocampus because I can't remember what it was. Maybe he was having seizures or something like that. But he, the result of that surgery was that he was able to remember his childhood in intricate detail, but he completely forgot recent memories and he was not able to form any new memories. Uh, so he basically just got stuck, uh, stuck there. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, and outside of this book, the brain, brain science is, is really, uh, fascinating. I never think of myself as kind of like a physics wonk or a space wonk or a brain science wonk or anything, but <laughs> Um, like, have you heard about the people who, when they have a heart transplant, their personality changes? Well, I remember things like that happening, but whether or not it's that specific example, you've heard like people having surgeries and then they wake up speaking different languages or something. Right. It's like a bunch of, there's a bunch of documented cases where like, you know, someone, someone, uh, a, a, a guy had a heart attack and he got, uh, the heart transplant of a little girl and he developed like a little giggle after that. Um, what? just all kinds of wacky things. There's a, uh, oh, oh, what's, what's his name? There's, um, I'll put it in the show notes, but there's a great blog post that I, I read recently, uh, that has a bunch of those cases. So, um, yeah. another one of my kind of favorite things about brain science is that, and, uh, Carr talks about this a little bit in the book too, is that when a memory is accessed, it affects the neurons containing it. So, yeah, memory storage is is actually structural. It changes yes. your brain when you remember something, and so what that means is that you're it's impossible to access a memory without distorting it. Yeah, and so this is this is why um, you know people misremember things, and this is why that yes. like if you dwell on something for a long time, it takes on this it's it a life of its own. You know, if there's something in your past that you really regret, or like a loss or something. You, and you you dwell on that for years and years. It you completely misremember uh, how things were yes. because it has actually become part of yourself. Um, there's a really good quote by Seneca in here um, about how when you uh, memory is the the creation of a person, right? So yeah. your memory is not a bunch of stuff that's sitting in your brain like like rocks in a bucket. Uh, your yeah. memory is the structure of your brain. And really, you know, the medievals and the ancients would understand that memory is actually the structure of your entire life. So, and yeah. that's, um, that's a really important idea. And Poulos kind of talked about this too in his book. Um, but the, up until only 150 years ago or so, um, it was a really common idea. Well, it was the, it was the basic, uh, understanding of wisdom that, memory was the basis of wisdom and not creativity. So memory roots you in, in place and in time and in relationships. And, um, in, and instead of instrumentalizing and objectifying, uh, pieces of knowledge that you then have access to, you, you ingest information or in order to change yourself and become, uh, more wise and more virtuous. So th that was yeah. kind of the, the gist behind the Seneca quote. And I think that's a super important yeah. understanding because, you know, uh, in this book, he talks a lot about how, um, when we outsource remembering things, um, we lose the ability to do it ourselves. And so yes. the internet as this database of information allows us to, uh, stop storing that information in our own heads, which basically means that we be, we stop becoming people. Uh, we stop yes. 
we don't grow as much as we would otherwise. Um, and that effect goes really deep. It's not just, it's not just the internet. We know we can find something there. It's, you know, they did this experiment where, um, two groups of people were told to enter in, uh, just some quotes into uh, a database using a computer. One, one group of people yeah. was told that the computer would remember, uh, what they wrote. And the other group was told that the computer would not remember. And they tested their mm-hmm. recollection of the stuff that they had entered afterwards. And the people who were told that the computer would not remember actually remembered much better. So just knowing yeah. that this information is not yeah. available to you, uh, makes it uh, makes you more likely to uh, internalize it. I thought that was just super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like the idea that, I mean, this what we're describing is the idea of like, if you don't use it, you lose it. Like that, that kind of thing that, you know, like memory is memory is like muscle. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's, it's really interesting to think about it like that. Cause right. Like how do you get more muscles? You use the muscles that you have. And so like you, you, you work them out and they get stronger and to know that there's something similar going on in terms of our memories, you know, like the more that you exercise your memory, the more that you, you know, do the work of, you know, forcing yourself to think, um, you know, to be discippointed and to think about certain things, then you're going to get better at doing it. Um, it actually honestly reminds me of the parable where, uh, of the stewards, like where, where the, you know, the, the master gives out differing quantities of his resources to these three guys. Uh, and the ones who like to whom much had been given, then they were given more. And the guy who got a little bit and just kind of buried it, the guy who basically took the guys who received the things, put them in, put them to work and and exercised the things they got more. And the guy who received, you know, one talent or whatever, and then didn't put it to use, he actually got that taken away from him. So he, lost you know the ability to to use what he had uh and so to think about memory like this is is really interesting um yeah totally and you know there's always uh an aspect of a death and rebirth you know with building your muscles uh you actually have to damage your muscles in order to get your body to uh, rebuild them so same thing with uh with memory um so let's see another a really interesting thread to pull on here is the idea of taylorism Um, And I just wanted to read a little paragraph here. Taylorism. Oh, so Taylor uh, was a guy in the early 1900s who went to a factory basically and started measuring people's movements in order to optimize them for the sake of uh, maximizing profits, uh, maximizing efficiency. Yes. Efficiency. Yeah. Yep. And it's founded on six assumptions that, that the primary, if not the only goal of human labor and thought is efficiency. That technical calculation is in all respects superior to human judgment, that in fact human judgment cannot be trusted because it is plagued by laxity, ambiguity, and unnecessary complexity, that subjectivity is an obstacle to clear thinking, that what cannot be measured either does not exist or is of no value, and that the affairs of citizens are best guided and conducted by experts." Do you see any problems with that? What is that? (laughs) Where to even begin? There's so many problems with those. Yeah, I think the uh, the concept that um, encapsulates that best is, again, what Poulos was talking about in his book about instrumentalization. Um, the idea that efficiency is the highest goal of man is uh, just hurts even to think about. You know, according to Westminster Confession Faith, uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, 
what is less efficient than doing something forever, right? Efficiency is aimed at an end, right? And so the sooner you're done, the better, right? And so eternity is... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's never ending. Yeah. I think another thing is what I've thought about this a bunch is like, what is less efficient than love? <laughs> like, like taking care of children is tremendously inefficient in many ways. You know, like you're, <laughs> if you, if you just think about that. And so I think this is a broader point, right? If you're talking about dealing with humans, you know, and your primary concern is efficiency and just treating human interactions like they're tasks to be done with and set aside, you know, like you're going to have, you're going to have a hard time <laughs> and you're not going to be somebody who's, you know, a very enjoyable person to be around and to, to interact with. And so, yeah, this just poor, poor Taylor, you know, he sees part of the image, he sees part of things like I mean, obviously efficiency, you know, we want to be efficient in service of love in service of human flourishing. Uh, but we can't just, the idea that you're just going to flatten that and make humans serve the God of efficiency, you know, is, is just, a, a not a fun thing to think about. Yeah. And really, if you, if you look at the etymology of the word efficiency, it comes from ex facire, uh, the Latin, which means to make out. Let's watch our language, John. We, this is the <laughs> thing. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you bet it is. Um, so yeah, like efficiency is, is achieving something. And so in that, in that sense, love is the most efficient, uh, thing and eternity is yes. the most efficient yes. thing because it's results. Yes. Uh, last. Uh, they're sustainable yeah. and they're transformative as well. So efficiency in the kind of crass mechanical sense is um, is really actually extremely inefficient. It um, It's short term yeah. and uh, it consumes uh, what you put into it yes. uh, to produce something yes. uh, potentially of, of lower, lower worth. I mean, that's how um, entropy works, right? Is yeah. uh, matter goes from one, uh, from a more useful state to another. So uh, efficiency is actually destructive. And this is, you know, this is a yeah. total tangent, but this is the difference between Christianity and uh, Eastern religions. I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita because someone on Nostra recommended it to me. Um, and, you know, Christianity and uh, Hinduism have a lot of similar ethics about uh, sort of self-denial and meditation on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on God and stuff like that. But the the ultimate goal is... Uh, in, in Hinduism is to transcend uh, the material world, whereas the ultimate yeah. goal in uh, Christianity is to redeem the material world because uh, Jesus yeah. became flesh and inhabited it. And he's that's permanent. Yeah. Uh, he is now a man. Um, yeah. So, uh, and he's, so yeah. And the new heavens and new earth, like physical, physical is not bad. Like, this, you know, you have the spiritual and the physical working together. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, God's love is efficient to transform and to elevate, uh, whereas uh, Hindu logic is efficient to um, to uh, to end to uh, to reach a, a state of uh, unbeing, um, which is equivalent to uh, unity with God in their system. But I think uh, Buddhism is more more explicit about that. You know, Nirvana is basically uh, reaching complete uh, uh, non-activity, essentially. So, anyway, uh, that's just a, a side note. Um, yeah. So, uh, so what I was thinking, what are some of the other things that stick out to you? Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book was his, his, uh, part about the calculator versus the web. So a lot of the time, you know, uh, people look at the calculator as, um, 
Well, the idea was that if if you use a calculator, you um, you become bad at math. Um, but really, what a calculator mm. does is it frees up some of your uh, RAM, essentially, uh, some of your short term memory, right. in order to uh, apply that to some other more advanced problem. So a calculator uh, raises your uh, the threshold of of what you're able to do mathematically. Um, and so people have said, like, you know, social media and the internet does does that too. But um, he draws a distinction between the two because a calculator works on the computational side of our brains, whereas the web works on our memory. He says the web has a very different effect. It places more pressure on our working memory, not only diverting resources from our higher reasoning faculties, but obstructing the consolidation of long-term memories and the development of schemas. The calculator, a powerful but highly specialized tool, turned out to be a, an aid to memory. The web is a technology of forgetfulness. And uh, mm. just to kind of explain that, the reason that it's a technology of forgetfulness is if you're distracted, you don't form new memories. So, you yes. know, there, there were some studies where they had two people read uh, a an, an article. And one of the articles had hyperlinks and the other article had no hyperlinks. Um, the, the people who read the article without hyperlinks read it faster and with more comprehension than the people who read with hyperlinks. Um, and, yeah. you know, even though these people were in theory clicking through to understand more context, um, they actually lost the train of thought in the article and were no longer yes. able to remember it. So, um, yeah. Any other thoughts before we kind of get into uh, the application? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, just a few things offhand. Uh, one of the crazy things, so he goes in and talks in like the history of, of um, you know, movable print type and like he talks about Gutenberg uh, near the beginning of the book. And one of the things that he talked about, again, it's like a, you know, secondary point or something, but he mentioned that Gutenberg went out of business. Did you, did you read that? Yeah, I know. It's such a sad story. His, his, uh, so his crazy invested all the money, like repossessed all his intellectual property and presses and everything. And, and he's the one who actually created the technique. A hundred percent. So Gutenberg like went out of business and like, didn't reap any of the financial rewards of, you know, of what he was doing. And obviously, you know, his name lives on, like we, we still think about like Gutenberg Bible and, you know, the Gutenberg press, like he's, he's known. Um, so this is a, an episode for another time, but just like denominating, you know, he, he, he didn't receive financial remuneration, but he denominated, his his rewards and glory you know that 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 is a valuable there's value to that but i just had never i just never do that um the, his description he uh car describes you know the the conversion from um from like bookmaking or, or writing you know like manually to he describes that as a transition from manual craft to mechanical industry um i, I just thought that was an interesting way of of thinking about it. like it's it's obviously true but um but yeah, I just thought that was that was interesting. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, the the other. Do you, do you remember him talking about Lee DeForest? Uh, I mean, no. the guy who created the Audium. It's like the yeah, first, yeah, yeah. First person to. And so it says, like all I could think about when I heard about him, it says Lee DeForest. He was uh, described as nasty, ugly, despised. He won the, some award of like the homeliest boy, which homeliest means like ugliest boy. <laughs> And uh, he grew up in Alabama and like when, you know, the ugliest boy thing, he started talking about Alabama. I was like, oh, okay, I could kind of see some country guy. But the crazy thing was like, he was this nasty dude 
who was like the Craig Wright of his day, who just like started suing people all over the place, you know, because of just his ideas, trying to protect his ideas. Um, and so, yeah, he was like renowned for, for, yeah, filing these lawsuits against people and just nobody really liked this guy, but he had this brilliant idea of, of creating the audium, which was this, this technological revolution, um, you know, that had to do with one of the first, he was able to take, uh, yeah, text and turn it into an, an audible medium. Uh, so that was, <laughs> that was just interesting. Uh, his, his contention yeah. that once tech, once technologized, the word cannot be detechnologized. So like he, he has like a, a one, one directional view of, of history, I guess, in, in this sense. So, uh, yeah, I wonder how that's, true that is. that's a really interesting idea. I know I was like, thinking the same thing. Cause, cause I mean, it, it fits with, you know, pull the, the, our tools shape us, right? He's saying that there's this yeah. path dependence where once, once a technology enters society, it changes it such that society is now dependent on that technology and you can, you can undo yeah. those things. But once that, what that cumulative effect happens far enough, I mean, imagine if you took away the computer right now, uh, either instantly yeah. or even just over a 10 year period, uh, we would uh, like society would collapse. We would have to remake from scratch. I think you might be yeah. right about that. Yeah, we. Yeah, I, I, that's. I was thinking about this exact thing. Like, you know, we're, we're we'd be haunted by the memory of what we what we used to have, right? Like, it it would be. Yeah, the idea that you you I, I guess I kind of agree that like you can't go back. Like, you can't go back once you. You know, it's it's only forward. I, I think another thing just that stuck out to you was just thinking about, you know, being aware of technology that says you know, that, that allows people to say, let my kingdom come, let my will be done. Like the idea of just developing technology without a clear goal in mind, uh, or without, a, you know, like in, d- without clear definitions of, of things that you don't want to pursue and things that you do want to pursue. I just, I think is dangerous. Um, yeah. And I think we have to be careful to, we, we have to be careful to trust God, um, for the direction of technology because, like a lot of the time, technology is not good, or at least uh, seems extremely dangerous. But but if it's if if it is true that technology is only forward, we have to and the fact that um, you know technology is built into creation in a certain sense. These things are possible in the world that God made. Uh, you know, I have I have friends who uh, just they don't have a phone, they don't use the computer, they just don't want technology to exist, and so they choose. To sure. basically exercise that discipline to say I'm going to undo technology personally, but you just yeah. uh, that's that's not a that's not a winning position, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> as much as I would also like to go back, but uh, but yeah, we have yeah. to trust God for for using that. We're all things work together for the for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So, um, yeah, yeah, but I do I do think again, like just knowing like knowing that there's these there's ideas and visions of the good life and what is real that are undergirding like our desires to seek out things and that produce like if you if you talk about like NASA and like the the you know like really what was what was behind the development in the space race you know really it's it's like a technological war against you know trying to compete with Russia to see you know who can get there first and to try to you know maintain dominance um but if you look at, you know, just the usage of resources, that that's more of what I'm more skeptical of is like, you know, was this, was this the most efficient use of resources? You know, eh, 
Like, I, I don't know. Like, I know there's been, obviously, there's been technological advancements, uh, but the fact that we can do something doesn't mean that we should do something is is kind of more, I guess, what I'm getting at there. Um, yeah, but uh, but, so, yeah. but don't appeal to efficiency, yes. right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. In the other, yeah, yeah. In the other uh, episode I was just recording now, um, uh, Alex was, was uh, talking about, uh, you know, colonizing the moon and how it basically engineering gives people this common uh common goal that they feel like they can participate in you know the moon landing yeah. was was experienced by americans and it kind of bound them together um i don't i don't know how true that is necessarily and how much people need kind of an overarching societal goal but uh you know there if definitely is an argument to be made about um the the idea of uh engineering inspiring uh people uh, yeah. Even if it's if it's wasteful, but uh, yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent agreed. And again, then you could you could also argue, you know, well, some of that work ended up turning into other things. So again, I definitely think there's been good that's come from it. I, I just I think it, I think it's helpful to have to to be to be skeptical and, and remember like what is the bigger goal, but you know, both as individuals and as you know, wider society, like what, like the flourishing of people is what we're aiming at here. <laughs> And, yeah, uh, sure. and so I, I think this is kind of part of the question, right? Is, you know, how much of, of the internet, yeah, obviously the internet is, has advanced human flourishing in a lot of ways, but there's also ways in which it, you know, has, has harmed us. And so taking an honest accounting of those things, I think is, is a, is a worthy endeavor and something that we, we need to do. Um, yeah. So, so what's, uh, what's his verdict? Do you think, um, it's, I think he he does a good job of of suspending judgment, um, but it definitely seems like, I mean he's he's cataloging the arguments against the internet, right? He's that's his emphasis. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. and I, I think he's realistic in understanding that uh, the internet can't be unmade, and we're kind of stuck with it. Um, but uh, he's definitely taking the contrarian position about how healthy the internet yeah. is, and since his book has yep. came out, I think that's become more common sense. But, um, like, you know, the, the main question is to me is, is linear good and nonlinear bad? Uh, and, um, and I think it's, it's neither, um, both, both have to exist, but I think, um, yes for, I think, I think linear is better. Uh, and maybe that's just me being a Luddite. Um, because (laughs) when, when books were introduced, uh, like codexes, um, it, it moved society away from an oral communication uh, sort of standard that emphasized memory. And so, you know, in Thucydides, yep. there's this guy, well, Thucydides remembers the entire speech that Pericles gave or uh, Aristides or mm-hmm. someone. Um, and and you read that as a modern and you're like, of course he didn't. He's just saying he did. And he's like, got, basically got the gist. <laughs> well, I don't yep. know if we can understand how strong these guys' memories were. In an I know. Society. I know. Uh, yeah. Maybe he did actually memorize the entire speech with one hearing. Yeah. Um, and moving from oral to to books, that seems like a downgrade to me. If indeed, uh, you know, th- their memories were strong enough to retain that sort of information, memory, uh, you know, again in line with Seneca, is the internalizing of the external. It it's the transformation of the individual, and as Christians, I think that that's what we want 
right? We we don't want to externalize our sin. Transformation, for example. <laughs> we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind according to the, wait, how's that verse end? Yeah. According to the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, no, it's a uh, oral communication. I don't know. I'm trying to think of it. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. The oral communication is is uh, more conducive to that sort of thing. Um, so, and and I don't think like you can't be a Christian in a in a nonlinear internet based society, but um, it could be a lot harder because you're introducing uh, a lot more reliance on external things. You know, Bitcoiners are um, really uh, interested in sovereignty, so uh, you know, individual sovereignty, and in yeah. a nonlinear uh, connected world. Um, you we're dependent not only for our food and, uh, you know, gasoline or whatever we're dependent, uh, for our own thoughts, for our own mind. And so it's yeah. very, very stoical and, uh, self-sovereign sort of thing to withdraw from, uh, from the constant stimulation that we get on the internet. Yeah. I, I do think it, it is interesting, right. To, to think about like, so, there's so much emphasis on, uh, you know, People look at books, and I've heard different people talk about, um, you know, the arrival of books as this way to provide objective, and an objective accounting for you know historical events or you know things along those lines, uh, because there's just too much subjectivity within uh, oral cultures, you know, potentially. Again, I do think that that I, I definitely acknowledge that that can be the case. I do think it severely underestimates you know, the, the reality of how strong our, our minds can be. And so I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, these, these scriptural stories, you know, we look, we, we tend to hear, Oh, look, it was an oral tradition. They passed down these stories as if this is somehow a negative thing. And this is somehow an indication of a lack of trustworthiness. Uh, and we look at, you know, written, written texts as if they're much more trustworthy. Uh, I, I don't think there's necessarily, you can necessarily make that case. Uh, I think it depends a lot on the character, you know, additional, additionally, the character of the people who are memorizing. I think it also memorize, it also, you also comes into play how many people are memorizing, you know, like these, these guys weren't just entrusting, uh, the, the passing down of their oral text to like one or two people. Like they were, they were, you know, doing these in among a much larger group of people. It's the Nostra model. You are the relay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you are the relay. And so, again, I, I think that it's real easy to, to you know, value and, and lift up the, the technological external, um, uh, you know, recording of things as if it's, if it's great. Uh, but especially as you get into the, into the technological age, this is something I want to get into. So this is actually a perfect transition. Um, he, he talks about the, the difference between books and, uh, you know, digital publishing is a loss of the sense of closure in the publishing process. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like, you know, digital books allow an infinite, an infinite, uh, an infinite updating of, of books. Like you can, you add, you can edit, you can censor, uh, in ways that, that physical books, you know, it, it wasn't as much more difficult. You know, you'd have to release a new edition and, you know, that would involve capital expenditure and, you know, all these kind of things. Um, and just even like the motivation behind that is just, you know, the, uh, the, the goal of that, where is it? The, I wrote it down here. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the hypertext, like the idea of like, oh yes, we have hypertext now. We're going to be able to integrate this in. It's going to make reading better. Hypertext would overthrow the patriarchal authority of the author and shift power to the reader. 
it would be, it would be a technology of liberation. You know, as soon as I read that, I'm like, oh man, the, the postmoderns are at it again. They, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, they're at, they're at it again. So yeah, I, I just think, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of weaknesses. Like that's a tremendous weakness. You know, if you can just censor the actual text of people's books, um, you know, in, in digital yeah. form, not even just having to go round them up. You can just literally just delete them from the database. Like it's, 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 it's a tremendous weakness. Yeah. And this is timely because, uh, the last couple of days we've been talking about editing on, um, on Noster, uh, Vitor wants to create a new kind one that is replaceable so you can edit your notes. Um, and most people, uh, seem to be arguing against that. I definitely am. I think it'd be much better to, uh, annotate your notes to say like, okay, I was wrong about this, or maybe like, here's a diff. I want to fix this typo. Um, but at least you'd have a history and it would be clear that this, this information has changed since, uh, so that, you know, you're not rugging people basically, uh, <laughs> in like ability in my book. Yeah. Uh, another interesting, uh, dimension, uh, uh, to the move away from oral communication and over to books is, um, well, uh, you know, it's, it, it might be mirrored now. Um, you know, oral communication is ephemeral, um, and yeah. digital is sort of not ephemeral, but it's also sort of is, you know, it's very easy to lose digital information if it's not backed up in a, in the proper way. Mm. And then also there are emerging a lot of new digital media that are ephemeral by design. Um, so, you know, like nests, for example, you can record your nest yeah. and turn it into a podcast. Correct. And most people do Nostra nests or Twitter spaces or whatever as sort of an ephemeral thing. And you yeah. have to be there in order to uh, receive that um, information and, and uh, knowledge. Um, and when it's gone, it's just gone. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting. I wonder, I wonder if we could be shifting not just to a digital, uh, a digital written world, but also to sort of like a hybrid oral uh, communication uh, medium or, uh, you know, norm as well. Um, yeah, no, that's fascinating. That is fascinating to think about in Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's easy to put an emphasis on sight and, and not an emphasis on, on hearing, right. And, and non-visual mediums. Um, it's, it's always easier to appreciate and value the visual mediums above the, the non-visual, um, the not, the not, you know, the, the mediums that aren't able to be demonstrated in a, in a certain, in certain ways. Uh, but again, I, I do think that, yeah, just it's a, it's an unsustainable standard in many ways. <laughs> like the reality is that, yeah. that, you know, like stuff can happen that we were, that we were witnesses to that we can't offer demonstrable visible proof to, you know, and like the, the fact that we don't have demonstrable visible proof is not evidence that those things didn't happen. And so I think that, you know, the, you know, the idea of, of, of a witness to something uh, and the idea of, yeah, memory as, as a form of, uh, memory as a form of testimony or as, as a form of proof, like we, we obviously, we accept this in the courts of law, you know, contrary to what CSI makes us, <laughs> psyops us into thinking and, and, and expecting from evidence. Yeah. I wonder if, um, if we are going to end up losing the idea of a witness, right? Because witnesses uh, need to be credible. And if you're in a society that erodes your credibility, the credibility of your memory, 
uh, maybe it becomes impossible to be a witness. I don't like that because yeah. the alternative is no. uh, surveillance, recording everything. Uh, so you have yes. Um, yeah, maybe we should go yeah. back. No, man. Um, so, so um, where I kind of want to go with this, with the time we have left, is applying this to design patterns in social media and on Noster. We we have this very specific idea of what social media looks like. Um, and there's a couple different kinds, you know, you got like Reddit and Twitter and Facebook, but the gold standard is kind of always, uh, time spent engaging with the content. Uh, we've talked about that in the past. Uh, Carr talks about it in the shallows a little bit about, um, in terms of Google and their search results and stuff. Um, but how, what would it look like if we assume that a linear version of social media is desirable? What would, what would that kind of thing look like to, mm. to turn the content that exists and is being produced in this really short for, short form version or as kind of disconnected one-off videos or images, um, what would that look like to put into a uh, a linear context that um, sort of strips away a lot of the distraction and allows for um, comprehension, uh, you know, allows for your brain to have the space to comprehend, right? Um I mean, the first thing I think of here is algorithms. Uh, algorithms help surface relevant content and remove the noise. So, you know, noise can be uh, of a whole bunch, bunch of different kinds. Maybe you've got your airdrop uh, account, uh, bot account that replies to everything that you uh, you post. Um, that's noise, and you're 0% you're interested in reading that. It's entirely distraction. Um, mm. But... Uh, there's also lots of ways to filter in or out based on, uh, you know, your social graph, how, how close you are to a given person, um, by topic, uh, through, uh, through content analysis or through sentiment analysis as well. Like say, I only want stuff that isn't really angry or, and isn't really positive. I just want stuff in the middle because, uh, cause that's kind of where critical, careful, nuanced thought happens. Um, mm. You know, we, we, uh, the instruments, instrument, instrumentalization of attention, uh, turns us into the machines, but we can turn things back around. We can say the machines can do the scanning, but we can do the comprehension. Um, in fact, he actually mentions something like that. We, he says that, um, as information and data processing advanced, we began to look for the very machines that exacerbated information overload for ways to alleviate the problem. So AI can actually be, um, something that instead of producing content, uh, it removes the noise. And I do want to like point out that removing noise is not the same as summarizing. Um, I was talking to one of my pastors yesterday about this book. I just saw him at a coffee shop and he was saying, uh, that's one of the things he hates the most is things that reduce, uh, reduce you know, work that someone has really put a lot of, uh, you know, content that someone has put a lot of work into to explain a nuanced argument, uh, things that reduce that to a summary are um, doing violence to the content, really. He was reading Bovink mm. a while ago, and he was getting tired because Bovink is difficult. And But he knew he couldn't put down the book because he would lose the train of thought <laughs> in, in, in the 30-page argument. <laughs> the 30-page argument is not fluff. It's actually all essential. But the way that people write books now is they start with one idea and then they say, well, I have to fill up 200 pages. <laughs> and then they just restate yes. the idea yes. over and over yes. through, with anecdotes and all this stuff. Those kind of books can't right. be summarized. 
So like I, I tried out Blinkist a few years ago and, um, it summarized things fine in 10 minutes, but I lost comprehension. So that's why people blow things up mm. in 200 pages is so you can comprehend by meditating on it. But it, it's also not a complex enough idea to merit that much space. So, um, so yeah, I, machines can be carefully used to remove noise. Um, but you have to be sure that it's actually noise and it's not actually, uh, Im- important parts of the argument. Yeah, this man, this is, it, it reminds me of this, this quote actually that I had written down from the, from the book to, to talk about. It says, uh, it's, let's see, it's on page 134. The near continuous stream of new information pumped out by the web also plays to our natural tendency to vastly overvalue what happens to us right now. Uh, we crave the new, even when we know that the new is more often trivial, more is more often trivial than this, uh, than essential. It's so easy to, you know, if so, as soon as something presents us with the smallest amount of resistance or it's difficult to understand, you know, the web presents you with, oh, look, here's this easier to understand thing or more, more, you know, approachable. And it tempts us to just like jump to the things that are and jump towards prioritizing and taking part of and paying attention to the things that are more easily accessible. Yeah, I was going to say algorithms has been a topic on Nostra recently, um, you know, with primal uh, censoring things or, you know, applying algorithms. And it's it's key to remember that uh, the problem with algorithms is, again, instrumentalizing yourself by outsourcing your judgment and attention to someone else. If you can yeah. be in control, sovereign over the machines that are doing the filtering, that solves the problem. Uh, so the problem with algorithms is not that, uh, something is doing filtering and thinking for you. The problem is that you're, you're letting someone with agency do your thinking for you. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a lot of good stuff. Um, is there anything else that we, we're right around the end, but is there anything else, any other things that stuck out from the book or anything else that you want to mention? Actually, do you want to mention the project that you worked on as a result of, uh, I've got a lot. Can, Can we just keep going? Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Keep going. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. So another thing I was thinking about is, you know, obviously UI patterns that remove distraction. Uh, there are obvious examples of this I've cited in the past notifications, likes, uh, ads, infinite scroll, that kind of thing. But what are some, what are some UI patterns that could be used to force the user to actually slow down, meditate and comprehend? Cause like what I'm kind of thinking is, is comprehension of um, of important information that you can then internalize to be changed is is sort of the goal here is is uh, self uh, self renewal through uh, through social relationships. Um, so just a couple ideas, just want to throw them out here. Um, very little inter- interface. Less is more, right? The more buttons that there are, the more distractions there are to make you think about things. If you have a hundred tabs across the top of your browser, that's going to be a distraction as well. Um, and this is one reason that you focus well with books. Um, if you're using a Kindle, you have at least a couple of buttons sitting there that you can press to go and do something else. But if you're reading a book, <laughs> it, you could go look up a footnote. Uh, that's about the extent of, uh, or you can see what year the thing was written. That's the extent. Is this an argument against children's books with like buttons in them? Is this, this is what you're saying? I like this. I like where you're going. Oh, this is, that's interesting. Uh, yes. I'm just going <laughs> to say Yes. You should be reading your three-year-old, uh, The Hobbit, and then when they turn four, Bavink. they should start with Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Bavink. That's just wait till they're five or six. <laughs> so uh, less interface. Uh, I think one thing that you can do is buttons that disappear, um, 
and this is obviously uh, sort of annoying uh, from if you're trying to get somewhere, but buttons that disappear with a delay or a slow animation um, force you to wait for the interface to respond to you. And what that does is with our very distracted minds, what are we going to do for three seconds while we're waiting for something to happen? Uh, it's actually uncomfortable. And so that that time can be spent as a reminder to say, like, no, you should be focusing on the content, not the buttons that you want to push. Uh, and that reduces the interactivity of things. Um, so slow animations is another thing. Um, prioritize content of a certain length. Um, so longer form content requires more um, more focus. You you have to spend more time, and it's also more likely that long form content is going to be more substantial. Uh, tweets can can be poetic, and you can meditate on something that short for quite some time. Um, but uh, being able to discern whether content is thoughtful or not. Uh, in an automatic way is a lot harder. So if you just prioritize longer content, um, you're gonna you're gonna be in a more meditative state. Um, mm. Any thoughts on that stuff so far? So the the idea of having different Nostra clients that interact differently. So if you're if you're in a like, all right, I'm I want to be here, and I want to interact in an, in an intentional way, and so I'm gonna use this thing where it does it does it prioritizes and features these things that you're describing. And then, you know, let's say you're you're in the middle of the, you know, the, the next Arab Spring or something, and, you know, speed is of the essence and getting things out, well, then you're going to, you could use a different, you know, client or something like that. Yeah. I, I think that that's really interesting to think about the idea of, of different clients for different purposes. Uh, yeah, and you can have read-only and write-only clients. Um, another, another idea I had is uh, you could force the writer to write a response in order to get to the next piece of content. And what that does is it makes you process what you've read. Um, and then what you do is instead of publishing that response, you throw it away. <laughs> like, I, 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 it sounds just absolutely diabolical to me, but it comes from a study in this book that he mentioned. Uh, I think I already mentioned it about how uh, people who knew that the data entry that they were doing would be dis discarded were more likely to remember the uh, the stuff that they were entering into the computer. So if you yeah. tell someone, write a response, this is for you. It's just a journal. We're going to throw it away, but you have to write a response in order to get to the next piece of content. Uh, that would be uh, almost cruel, but possibly very effective. <laughs> well, well but, uh, honestly though, it makes me think about learning, right? When we like with our kids, you know, we do, we do homeschool stuff. And so, you know, we, you, your kids read something and then you ask the kids to read it back and like to, to articulate it in their own words. Like, what did you just yeah. read? Because like the goal is not just that they're this, you know, containers that we shove information into. Like we want them to be able to, you know, to, to articulate and, and demonstrate comprehension uh, for what they've read. And, and so I, I think, again, I think there's something to this. I think that there'd be, yeah, I just think this would be super interesting to, to, and, and people would be, yeah, people would just be interested even just as, I don't, I wouldn't say a gimmick, but just even as like a, a different thing to experience. Like it just would be, I would want to Probably. play around on this site. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the problem is it, it's probably more of a novelty if you actually build something yeah. like this. Um, you know, people are not going to spend, there's, you know, revealed preference is this thing where, you know, people will just want to do what's easiest and what's most stimulating. And so. 
you know, maybe certain people would would do stuff like this. But the kind of people who are going to use a slower interface for Noster are the people who are already journaling and blogging and writing uh, yeah. and meditating. Yeah. Um, you know, delivering yeah. this sort of slower experience to the masses is uh, uh, just almost a contradiction in terms, you know. So I, I don't like, know. It's like the... It's it's like the it's like the social media version of vinyl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of hope about like fixing society uh, and getting it to be more linear or oral rather than nonlinear. But uh, I don't know. It's at least interesting to think about. Maybe there is a way forward, and maybe nonlinear isn't as bad as we think. Um, but uh, another another idea that I had about this was. If Taylorism is the problem, if the overemphasis on efficiency and instrumentalization is the problem, um, what if you just did the opposite? Embrace inefficiency. You know, uh, infinite scroll is efficient. Uh, you yeah. not only have to do very little in order to get to the next piece of content, but you have multiple pieces of content on the screen at the same time. So what if you only showed one piece of content? Or what if you had to do something uh, difficult in order to get to the next thing? Um, like write a reply or like instead of click a button, you have to do <laughs> like a CAPTCHA <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yeah, CAPTCHAs I don't feel like would be the way to go. There's, there's got to be some sort of more clever, <laughs> more clever way to get it. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is all just modeled after real social interaction. Interacting with other people in real life is is not efficient. And so, you know... You you have to think about your thoughts. Uh, you have to come up with your thoughts, like I'm doing right now, mm. um, in a in a unpolished way. Uh, you have interruptions. Uh, you have confusion, misunderstanding, um, and that's inefficient. So, like, what does that look when applied to social media? Uh, I mean, again, the the nests idea, the oral oral side of things, is uh, is maybe an interesting way forward, but. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I'm just trying to think of is, you know, how do we overcome resistance? You, you give an incentive, right? And so my, the idea would be like, you know, you have a client where somehow, you know, you leverage, you leverage Bitcoin or something, right? Like you leverage the lightning network to be able to incentivize people to go the extra mile and, you know, and, and be willing to endure some of the friction, um, I don't know. It yeah. can be really interesting. It could, you could, I mean, that could be, yeah, I don't know. There's lots of ways that would, that would be really interesting. That's a really interesting idea. I, you definitely have to be careful not to make the micropayment dopamine rush, uh, yet another yes. distraction, right? So you like, yes. you basically say, okay, now you're going to read 50 posts and you're going to think about it. And if you get to the end, then we'll give you, you know, 5,000 sats or something yeah. like that. Uh, but yeah, interesting idea for sure. Um, another one is the, just what does it mean to embrace humanity? Um, that's kind of the, just a restatement of the entire goal, but, um, you know, refusing to be quantified, uh, in the shallows, he mentions at one point that all this distraction doesn't just take away our ability to think deeply. It also takes away our ability to, uh, to, um, interact, uh, as a human across other dimensions. So he says, it's not only deep thinking that requires a calm, attentive mind. It's also empathy and compassion. So all this distraction and all this short, uh, short duration, uh, sort of stimulation results in, uh, knee jerk re reactions, uh, dunking anger, um, you know, things that you say that you then regret because, uh, you're not being compassionate 
towards other people. So, um, and uh, it's not really like a design pattern or anything, but definitely something to keep in mind that the goal is not just to learn or to contemplate kind of information. Um, but it's also to actually connect with other people. You know, that was Facebook's thing is like, you know, you want to connect with your family and friends and what it ended up doing was driving a wedge between, uh, between them. So, yeah, um, I think that's, that's, that's the sum total of my, the ideas that I had, uh, put together so far. Well, cool. Again, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of food for thought. <laughs> yeah. So, and it turns out I've actually been thinking about this stuff for a long time, uh, off and on. I, I wasn't like super, super into building social media stuff until I got into Noster. But in 2018, I remembered this yesterday. I, I had this idea for a slow social media, uh, application. I was thinking of calling it snail mail. And just making it a very, very beautiful kind of like watercolor interface where, uh, you know, you feel like you're opening an actual letter. Uh, you're you're actually interacting with paper and with a real mailbox and stuff. But the, the key thing was that when you send a piece of communication, there's a delay. So you can't uh, you can't converse in real time. Uh, you basically have to wait an entire day or an entire week in order for the other person to receive your message and write you back. And the, <laughs> the reason for that was um, if you have to pack everything that you want to say into a single letter, into a sing single artifact, you have to structure your thought a lot more and actually contemplate what's inside of you rather than what's outside of you, which is what we've been talking about here. So I think that would be a, a very easy thing to build on Noster. Um, you, just, you just date your thing in the future and then send it later on. Uh, so that would be cool. And then I also have been working on a, actually just inspired by this book the other day, I, uh, put together a, a small, uh, Noster client that I'm going to release later today called Zephyr, uh, because that connotes what I want it to be. It's pretty, it's minimal. There is, there are three buttons total and, and I've applied a lot of these UI ideas, um, these UI patterns that we've been talking about. So the, the buttons disappear when you're not hovering over them. Um, you get one note at a time. The images are not displayed. Uh, quotes are not displayed. Um, there's hyperlinks still because uh, you can't really get away from that. Um, but it, it's been super fun to build because because uh, like this kind of application would not have been possible in the past uh, yeah. because there's no way to, uh, to add data into the system in this app. It's read-only. Um, you know, in the past, in order to build something like this, you would need content and you would need a social network, but with Noster, you could just build these micro apps and you can do it in half a day. And, uh, you have a completely new take new interface on top of an existing, uh, infrastructure. Um, it's yeah, just super cool. Yeah, and Noster, amazing. uh, encourages experimentation like this. So, um, yeah, if you want to check that out, just go to zephyr.coracle.social. And, um, all the links in there link to the Noster.com and jump instance. So you can then choose whatever, um, uh, whatever client you want out of there. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely want to see more progress in this area. Um, user experience and, and like social media patterns has never been my hobby horse, but now that I'm working on the decentralized 
aspect of the social media. It's like we should just not we should not be rebuilding the same toxic distraction laden yeah. interfaces that we're coming from. So uh yeah. anyway, that's the idea. That's the goal. Love it. No, that's such a cool project. I mean, I just got on there and I'm playing around with it a little bit right now. But I, I do think that this is what and another thing that I think is just so beneficial about this is just understanding there's the philosophical decisions that are, are involved in just making something as simple as simple as buttons on a page. This this podcast has been a window into that for me. I think another person who has helped me to think a lot about this is uh, Skyler. Uh, Skyler is the head of design for Fetty, uh, who's working on, um, yeah, just the, the basically federations to to help people all over the world uh, leverage Bitcoin without uh, in different ways. So he's he's just talked a lot about uh, in the the conversations I've had with him, just talking a lot about this idea of just all the the factors that go into decision making and um, and you know why you'd want to do certain things and and the the choice you know if you do this then then this happens. There's, that's a whole world that is just I'm I'm not aware of as much. It's it's more of a, a relatively new thing. Uh, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating uh, the the things that go the decision making the the ideas philosophies that go into you know helping people shape those decisions. So again, any anything yeah. that helps me think uh, and and think about the world and and you know see the things that are going on that maybe I don't just intuitively see, I'm down for. So. Pumped, super grateful for this conversation and for your work uh, to implement those things uh, on Zephyr. And, and hopefully this will be the first of many. Yeah. And there's another good resource for this kind of thing is nostradesign.org. Uh, it's sponsored by OpenSats and run by a few of the designers that are uh, on Noster. And um, yeah, it's a deep it's a deep hole. Uh, understanding design and uh, requires understanding people. Um, so if you're if you're yep. working on Noster or if you're curious about what the uh, the the design challenges of building on Noster are, that's a good resource. Nosterdesign.org. Awesome. Well, John, thank you again for for introducing this book to us and for for picking it. We've got some other ones that'll be coming down the pike uh, that we were talking about, and so yeah, this will, this will definitely won't be the last Noster book club that we do. Um, is there anything else you want to just in closing I'll give you the last word uh, just as we close out this episode no for sure that's that was a great conversation so thanks Jordan and we will see you on Noster 